Good to be with you again this morning. Had a beautiful ride in. The snow falling uh, gently uh, from the sky was just gorgeous on my early morning ride. And here I am to bring God's Word to you. We're going to go back to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to finish that chapter. Last week when we met, I was pointing out the fact that Paul's letter to the church in Colossa is very similar to our situation here. He's writing to a congregation that is without a pastoral leader. They had started with a man called Epaphras, and he sensed that God was calling him to something else. And right now he's with Paul in prison somewhere and encouraging him. And Paul is feeling like this young congregation needs a pastoral leader, and so he sends someone. The fourth chapter tells us who that is. It's Tychicus, and he's going to be there to encourage them and, and teach them in this transitional time. And Midland is in a transition from a beloved pastor who had been here for 17 years, called to serve in some other capacity, and God saw put to send you a transitional leader because you're transitioning toward a new pastor, a new season in your life. So bring someone in in the transition to help encourage you and support you along the way. After we establish the, the connection of this letter to the situation here at Midland, we notice that Paul prayed over these people. He prayed a, a touching prayer that they would have a growing understanding of God's will through all the wisdom and understanding of the Holy Spirit. And out of that will, they would come to experience fruitful living and a growing understanding of God, and endurance and patience. And on top of all that would be joyful thanksgiving. And then I prayed that prayer over you, knowing that this church could use that as well. In this time of transition, how important it is to know and understand God's will and to have all these blessings come about as a result. That's where we ended up, and that takes us now into the next section uh, in which Paul now says, where does that joyful thanksgiving come from? Let me uh, blow your mind a little bit as I share with you the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. I want to direct you to, uh, starting with verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, let me read these verses. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice that what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me talks about this mystery. Now, who doesn't like a good mystery? 
I love a great mystery. And in fact, I think every great book starts out that way. In the beginning, it presents a situation. You're like, how did it get there? How did that happen? And then throughout, the author is laying out the clues, doing the investigation to say, here's how it all fits together. And in the end, you're just blown away because it all fits together perfectly. It was uh, before COVID happened that two of my three children were at home and we decided, let's go out to the movie theater, right? So that's how I know it was pre-COVID, because the movie theaters were still open. And there was no blockbuster movie out at the moment, so we just picked one called Knives Out. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but it is a classic whodunit movie. Uh, murder took place at the beginning, and the, all the family members and some of the household servants are gathered together to piece together the events of the last 24 hours to find out the, um, and resolve the mystery. You think you know who did it. All the clues are pointing to one particular person. But then in the end, the turnaround, it flips on its head and suddenly you understand perfectly how everything came about and what really happened. It's a great movie. I'm not going to share anything more because if you want to watch it, then uh, I don't want to spoil anything from it. But imagine that, a mystery Paul speaks about. The clues have been hidden for ages and generations. That's what Paul is is, is talking about. There's this, this profound, amazing truth that up until just recently has been kept hidden. People have not known about, but now it's been revealed. And Paul has taken it upon himself to reveal that precious truth to anyone who would listen and dare to understand. It's the mystery of Jesus in them. Paul says, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Now, think about this. Paul, in his previous life as Saul, was well-versed in the Scriptures. He studied under the greatest mentors of all. And he knew, he probably had the whole thing memorized, right? And he, he knew it. He was the top of his class, summa cum laude, graduating from Jewish uh, Torah school. He knew this stuff like the back of his hand. And now, as the Holy Spirit has now taken over and converted him such that he believes in Jesus Christ, he can look back on the Old Testament Scriptures and he can see all these clues that were planted there from the beginning of time. And they're all pointing in one direction to this person, Jesus Christ. Suddenly, the mystery has been revealed to him. And he's taken it upon himself and feels called to now share and, and, and give the, reveal this mystery to those that will listen. And primarily to those who were Gentiles. They were not the children of the promise. Now when I say children of the promise, you understand who I'm talking about. Israel was the, the people of the promise. They were the descendants of Abraham. God promised Abraham, I will give you an ancestry as great as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and, I will, and every nation will be blessed through you. The children of the promise, giving them a, a, a people and a place that they can call their own. They were the Jews, but it was hidden from them. And now that it's being revealed, it's being revealed through Paul to the Gentiles. Imagine that. Yeah? And it's being revealed to us. This is the foundation upon which everything Paul has to say to the church from this place on rests on this foundation, the unraveling of this mystery. 
And so let's go back to verse 15, and where Paul begins to establish the foundation of who this person Jesus Christ is and what he was all about. Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have, their crea- have been created through him and for him. He is all before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have, in everything he might have the supremacy. For God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Paul establishes his Christology. This is the foundation upon which we build now our lives, our understanding here. Verse 15 begins with the Son. I just want to stop there. He talks about the Son, capital S-O-N, who's Paul speaking of and what clues are hidden about this. Well, we might say he's clearly talking about God's Son, right? But where in the Old Testament might we find clues to this reality? For someone such as Paul, who knew the Old Testament but wasn't sure of the, the identity of Christ once he came. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the very beginning of time. Sin has taken place, the fall has happened, and God is saying, first to the servant and then to the woman and then to the man. He says to the ser- serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And all the women are saying, Amen, Amen, to those creepy serpents that crawl upon the ground. Put it to them. But here's what else he says. But I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, you might not think that's saying too much, but Paul would read that and say, that points. Jesus Christ. Already in the very beginning, since the fall, God is planning out the redemption of his people because he can see where this is leading. And Paul would elevate that. Even in this one word, the Son, he elevates that. But more than that, Paul would recall those words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 we read these words, and you probably heard them most recently. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Who's the son? The son born of a virgin, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Two chapters later, Isaiah speaks of this. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. To us a son is given. What son is given? Well, finally, the dawning of a new age, the son comes, born of a virgin, and his name is Emmanuel. God confirms the appointment of his son, the identity of his son, In Matthew chapter 3, this is where Jesus is in the wilderness. John is baptizing in the wilderness at the River Jordan. Jesus goes up to John and says, I must be baptized. Of course, John says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You ought to baptize me. But Jesus insisted, and he got his way. And 
Scripture tells us that as he is coming up out of the water, Matthew sees what looks like a dove descending on him and alighting him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, capital S-O-N, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Not only Paul, but even the early disciples recognized that he was truly the Son of God. But this dispute isn't over. The early church, in the early centuries of the Christian church, they're disputing over the identity of Jesus Christ. And so out of there comes an important document of our faith, foundation of the Christian faith called the Apostles' Creed. And in there it states, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, establishing his identity as significant and other. He is the very truly the Son of God. As indicated throughout the whole of the Old Testament, pointing its way toward the new and the fulfillment of God's plan. There's the Son. Next he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. My paraphrase is he was a spitting image of his old man, right? I want to show you a picture, if you may. Brad, can we get that up there? Now, look at, look at this handsome guy and uh, next to his son. This is my son. We're at a Tigers baseball game a while back. And I wonder if you see a resemblance there. Is he the spitting image of his old man? Now, some have said, when they see a picture of my son, they say, oh, my goodness, he looks just like Tom. Looks just like his dad. I don't quite see it. Maybe you see it. But uh, that's my son, my one and only son, my begotten son. Now, I have other adopted sons, young men that I, I, I love as a son, but he's my one and only son. And uh, Paul writes that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. And so when he writes this, we know that in Jesus, we know what God is like. We see in his character, we understand in his values and in his work and ministry, everything we need to know about God. Paul says even further in verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in his Son, in Jesus Christ. So again, if we want to know who God is, if we want to expand our understanding of God, we look to his Son, Jesus Christ, and we got the entire New Testament that will help us. But we also have the Old Testament, right? All the clues that God has planted there that is revealing the ancient mystery that had been hidden for so long. But one thing I thought of this week, when Paul writes, he's the image of the invisible God. I was thinking, what is the one thing throughout the entire Old Testament that God forbade in Israel, but was constantly judging them for? Idolatry, wasn't it? Creating an image of anything in the likeness of God above. And they would do that. Remember, the, after the Exodus, Moses up on the mountain, and they beg Aaron to fashion an idol for them that they can worship and follow. And see, he fashions a golden calf, and suddenly God is so upset. He's about to destroy them, and then Moses intercedes, and, and God relents and, and decides not to. But that's how jealous God is of idolatry. So this is a bold proclamation of Paul, one in which he would stake his life 
on and be thrown into prison, that he is the image of the invisible God. The one thing, the one human creation, not human creation, but humanity, that was represented the full likeness of God. And God was pleased to have his likeness dwell in him. So again, if you're going to stake your life on it, you better believe it. And Paul is saying this is part of that divine mystery. He's the son. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. He's the firstborn. And I just want to trace that through Scripture because it's a really interesting connection point. What do we know about the firstborn? Well, they're the firstborn, right? But um, we, we look to the Old Testament and they had certain privileges. Probably the, the, the most popular one to remember is the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, it's an interesting concept. and we, we always say that Isaac's sons were Jacob and Esau, as if Jacob was the oldest and Esau was the younger, right? Why do we do that? Because Esau was the first. They were twins, much like I'm a twin. And, and Esau was the first one to come out, and Jacob was the second to come out, as I'm the second to come out. I don't think of myself as older than my brother, um, and, and in the order, it's Tim and Tom. It's always Tim and Tom. But here, it's Jacob and Esau. Well, we know the story, right? Because Rebekah, uh, Isaac's wife, and the younger two, Jacob, tricked Isaac in his old age to give the blessing and the birthright to Jacob. So we, we know from this story that to be the firstborn, you get a blessing and you get a birthright. And the birthright gives you a double portion of the inheritance. That's good. And the blessing is to now follow in the steps of the Father and be blessed in your journey along the way. In ancient times, it was the son who would take the throne when the king was no longer able to serve as the ruler and leader. It was believed, especially in the each Egyptian world that Pharaoh was a god, and so therefore the firstborn was God himself as, and would take over for Pharaoh once he was done. So there is certain privilege and rights that come with the firstborn. Paul calls Jesus the firstborn. I, I want to I go back to Jacob and Esau because Jacob then was the, the line in which God would fulfill that blessing and that promise. So really, the children of the promise came through Jacob eventually. <clears throat> and there was a point in Scripture where God actually changed Jacob's name. After Jacob wrestled with the angel, then God gave him the name Israel. And Israel really became the name of this people that God was growing and developing and they eventually became a nation. They were God's chosen people. And in, in Exodus chapter 4, God commands Moses to go to Pharaoh and say this to him. This is one of the first things that Moses is to say to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And we know that eventually the 10th plague was that got uh, Pharaoh to release Israel finally was the slaying of the firstborn, including the firstborn son of the Pharaoh who was presumably God moving into that place of command. But even at that, Israel was disobedient to God throughout history. And so as Paul recalls, 
God had in mind to raise up another firstborn, the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. And he has all those uh, privileges and blessings of being the firstborn. He says he's the firstborn over all creation. And you might shake your head and say, no, he's not. Adam was the firstborn. More technically, Cain was the firstborn, right? Because Adam was created. He wasn't born. But Cain would have been the firstborn. So Jesus wasn't technically the firstborn over all creation, was he? Except Paul is agreeing with John, who writes in the first chapter of his gospel, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John understood that the Word was Jesus Christ, and he existed before creation was ever took place. And he was there creating the world. And so Paul says, yes, he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the one that brought creation about. He is God himself. And in him, Paul Paul specifically says, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. I want you to think about those. Thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So you get them corrupt and, and this world is in disarray. But Jesus created them and created them to be over them and there to work for him. We see what happens when they're out of place and they're not working in alignment with the creator. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of dissension and riots going on in our world. But it doesn't minimize the fact that he created them all through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. They function according to the design and purpose in which he created them. Until all things align back with Christ, we will continue to see the chaos and the sin, the abuse and the violence that is taking place in our world. And when it conforms in Christ, it will come together as shalom, place of peace, the completeness of what God has designed. Moving on, just very quickly, I want to point out that um, Paul writes that he is the head of the body, which is the church. So again, when people believe in Jesus Christ, this identity that Paul is pointing out, the mystery that has been revealed, when they accept that by faith, they are then incorporated into the body of Christ. We are in Christ. He's the head, and we are part of him, and we have benefits of being part of the firstborn, the church. Paul continues on and says he is the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. What is he speaking of here? Well, we know that Jesus is the only one who died an earthly death and was raised back to life eternal. There's been people before him that, were, that went to death and Jesus, by his own power, spiritual power, raised them from the dead, but they eventually died again. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. 
so that he might have supremacy. So all of us, we will die, but because of our faith in him, because we have been united with Christ in, the, in his body, and we follow him as the head, we have the assurance that we will rise again from the dead. He's the first, and we follow, and we continue to be the church for all eternity. The two things that Jesus did not have supremacy over up at that, until that point of his death on the cross was sin and death, Right? But by taking on the weight of our sin and paying the punishment for our sin by death on the cross and then being raised to life again, he conquered both sin and death, those two things which he did not have supremacy over, and now he reigns supreme for all those who choose to follow him. This is the identity and work of Jesus Christ that Paul feels is so foundational that he takes a moment right here at the first part of his letter to now describe it to them, to reveal it to them, so that it would no longer be an, a, a mystery, so they would be assured of who Jesus Christ was. And if they chose to believe, they would benefit because they are reconciled to God. Through him, he will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And when we are reconciled with God, all sin is forgiven. We are holy, without blemish, blemish and free from accusation. We have this hope of eternal life. And in the meantime, we have joyful thanksgiving, which can rule our hearts and our minds so that we can be the church of Christ in this day and age. This is the truth. This is the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. And now you know. Will you accept it? Will you believe it? Will you follow as we journey together? Let's pray and ask God to confirm that in our hearts. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. You knew from the very beginning that we would need a Savior, and so you planned you planned for it. And when the time was right, you sent him into this world, first as a tiny baby, but then he grew. And in his growing, we see an example of your love and grace and mercy. And then you put him on the cross, made him suffer and die on our behalf. Three days later, you raised him from the dead, and you've planted in our hearts the Holy Spirit, which believes that if Christ died, we died. If Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised to life as well. And we are so grateful, joyfully grateful for this grace that you've provided for us. Let us live in the light of that truth. Let us be the church in which you are the head and let us discover your will fully in our lives so that you may be pleased with our service. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.